And um, so, uh, picking up from earlier today, uh, the goal of, to, of uh, today's, uh, in general, uh, thoughts is uh, emotion integration and uh, the ability to feel and connect with emotions and understand the messages that they carry and be able to integrate those um, implicit feelings, because the emotional mind speaks to us through largely the body, be able to understand those messages and be able to, rather than act out on them to make them go away, you know, when we're angry and we express rage, that's the desire to get, to expose, to expunge, to push out that feeling of, of frustration and disappointment. And on the other hand, when we shut down, when we emotionally dissociate, we lose connection with the body, when we essentially uh, vanish and we feel ourselves moving into the back of our mind and the actions around us become kind of, you know, fuzzy, that's a way to essentially shut out the experience, to numb ourselves. And if we don't learn to find that third middle path that the Buddha spoke about, which is being able to connect, to hold, and then to address our emotions in a constructive way, we'll develop a lot of strategies that are the telltale signs that there are... um, that there's a lack of emotion integration going on in our life. The, some of the most obvious ones are, of course, what Freud called signal anxiety, when we're repressing the emotions that need our attention. Um, what will happen is, of course, we'll start to seek avoidance coping, which is we will avoid people and situations where we get triggered. And avoidance coping is simply the idea of when I'm around you, I feel X. I don't want to feel X, so I'm not. I'm going to avoid you. And of course, if it's somebody that you don't see on a regular basis, avoidance coping might seem that it works. Um, of course, uh, people will take avoidance coping into relational experiences where they cannot sidestep the person. For instance, it might be somebody we work with, a family member. It could be a um, somebody we're a roommate with or a very close friend with. And the energy that goes into avoidance coping adds what the great psychologist um, Dan Wegner called um, cognitive overload, which is now I'm adding on top of my, my disappointment, my sadness, my anger, I'm going to add the additional stress of how can I not face those feelings repress them, and at the same time go through this elaborate dance of not getting the attention of that co-worker who I'm upset with, or my roommate, or my, my wife's or husband's brother, or whatever, somebody that we really can't avoid. And so that causes additional stress, and then it, it uses up our emotional resources. Um, avoidance coping does havoc to our self-esteem because every time we avoid someone, it tells us that we are not fully adult agents in our life, able to care for ourselves. It tells us that essentially that we are back as children being wounded by caretakers and can't escape. 
it's, it always boils down to carrying this early emotional experience of I cannot survive an interaction. Um, because in childhood, when our parents act unskillfully or when other kids act unskillfully as a child, it feels like annihilation, as one uh, psychologist called it. It creates the fear of annihilation, death. I can't survive. So we, we bring that fear after we've been wounded, disappointed, hurt, that it will, that we can't survive, that we can't withstand it. And, and, and so avoidance coping actually, in a way, propels us back to those stages of vulnerability. Um, procrastination is an excellent example of a kind of lack of integration. Um, procrastination is the right hemisphere's way of saying we're pushing ourselves to do something that we haven't yet acknowledged the emotional repercussions of. So I'll give you an example thereof. Like, for instance, you want to go to graduate school. Why? I don't know. It'll cost you $100,000 and you'll wind up still <laughs> with suffering. No, it's a good idea. But anyway, so you want to go to graduate school and... Uh, you, but at the same time, you, for some reason, every time you sit down wanting to write the uh, application, you find yourself on Amazon or on uh, Facebook or something else. And you, it's like, like that. And very often, it could be two possible emotional messages. The first is, I really don't want to go to graduate school. I've reached an impasse in my life. I don't like my job. And I'm just going with what my friends have suggested, which is, for them, going to graduate school bought them some time until they could find something that they like doing. That's a fair enough. But if you're emotionally, you don't really want to do it. Procrastination is a message saying, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or, sometimes procrastination could carry a message that we haven't yet addressed an underlying emotional fear. For example, you are creative. You want to write a, a poem and put it in a magazine, or you want to do uh, submit photographs to a local photography exhibit, or whatever. And every time you get close to submitting your work or finishing your work, you find that you can't do it. You get stuck at the very last uh, moment of being able to submit it. The underlying emotion is the fear of rejection again. We've experienced, all of us, early rejections where we risked being vulnerable and open and expressing ourselves, and as a result, we're ridiculed early on in life. So we've all experienced real, real painful first arrow shots of taking a risk, Expressing ourselves, being creative, leads to people laughing, rejecting us, not taking us seriously. We don't feel seen. And so in our adult life, when it comes to that moment of taking the risk to, to literally push ourselves forward, to be seen, to willing to show our creative sides, show our emotional sides, our emotional mind say, is saying, I'm not ready yet. You haven't, you haven't prepared me for what will happen if these people say no. They don't want my photographs. They don't want my short story. I know 
my left hemisphere, which just wants to achieve and accomplish and wants to get in everything and doesn't take me, my emotional side, seriously, just wants me to get on with my life. But emotionally, I haven't yet taken the steps to connect, to prepare for the possibility of rejection. And the emotional mind is saying, hey, not so fast. Not so fast. So this is bringing me to um, a very... And of course, finally, before I go on to the big important theme, um, uh, when we have not integrated emotions yet fully, <laughs> there's a real spike, of course, in addictive behaviors. Addictive behaviors are, at essence, an attempt to replace other people in our life for emotion regulation. When we've been wounded, when we've had a really disappointing relational experience, and we haven't felt it, and we haven't acknowledged it, and we haven't found new people who will be empathetic to talk about those woundings, we will then seek regulation for those emotions when they arise by drinking, by shopping, by gambling, through sex, through anything that gives us that dopamine spike that makes us feel really good so that we can not take the risk of going to another human being and saying, you know, I, I'm feeling really lonely, I'm feeling really sad, I'm feeling frustrated in my life, I'm feeling confused about what to do next, I don't know what to do, and that other person goes, me too. And in that moment when they say, me too, their face, the nonverbal cues, their vulnerability creates the container that allows us to be with our most wounding emotions. But until we do that, the tendency will be to bypass that entire... Because that involves what? Risk. We have to risk that we'll go to one person after another and they won't say me too. And instead they'll be really directive. Well, when I have that happen, I, I mean, that never happens to me. I don't know. Or, well, that has, you know what I do? I get busy. I get busy. I fill up my life because I don't want to feel that shit. You know? I don't know why you want to acknowledge these feelings. Go away. So, <laughs> so eventually, though, we find somebody who can say, me too. But until that happens, of course, it's so much more tempting to engage in something that releases that dopamine rush through, you know, whatever, it's online shopping or wine or Netflix binges or anything to replace other people. Now, you might say, but I got a ton of people in my life. I got, I'm, I'm, I'm full with people, but are they the people that we can say, you know what, I'm confused. I'm not happy right now. That's what I'm talking about. So... Getting back to the uh, big picture, uh, in every situation in life, as we found, that we are always of two minds. There's that saying, being of two minds, and it kind of always suggests that there's something wrong to be of two minds. But in fact, every important juncture in your life, every time you make a decision, every situation in your life, you are of two minds. One mind is a mind that is constantly looking for the solution somewhere in the future and tells you that you're missing something and if you get that thing you're missing, you'll be complete and everything will be just rosy. That is the story that the left hemisphere will spin out forever. 
The left hemisphere, of course, makes sense of life in terms of narratives. Narratives create a narrative arc or journey that's episodic, and always the solution is somewhere in the future. And that's the underpinning of what the Buddha calls Tana or craving. This idea that the reason I'm suffering is because I don't have something. I better get that thing I don't have, whether it's a degree or money or children or a bigger house or a 401k or I've got to get that thing. And that thing is somewhere over there in the future. And if I could get that, I would never suffer again. And the other story is the emotional mind, which doesn't think about future or past, which is not even time-stamped. So woundings that happened 40 years ago can feel just as fresh as if they happened yesterday. Your intellectual mind time-stamps everything. If I asked you, what did you eat for breakfast yesterday, you'd be able to tell me, and you'd be able to know that it was yesterday, and it would have its own arc of, yeah, I woke up, and it was this and that day, and I had oatmeal, and blah, blah, blah. But when I ask you, when if I could talk to your emotional mind, it wouldn't have a timestamp, a really difficult, painful experience that happens when we are three years old, will have just as much pain, just as much fear, just as much power over us as if they happened yesterday. That's why Freud called the emotional mind timeless. Until we address the wounds, the emotional woundings do not go away, and they are just as powerful as if they happened today. And so while in this moment of time you've got one part of your mind telling you the answer is in the future, and when I get this, when I get that, when I accomplish the other thing, I'll be happy. And yet, at the same time, your emotional mind is going, I just want to be safely connected and heard and loved and loved back right now in my life. And I don't want to feel the pain of those early times when I expressed that need and was greeted with rejection or shaming or abandonment. And it's interesting, they've even done studies where when people are using their left hemisphere, guess what, they tend to look up because we're looking towards the horizon to see, you know, our ancestors when they were in the planning narrative mind, they would be looking, oh, look over there, those fields in the distance. That's probably where the food is. I'll leave my shelter and go over there and then I'll be happy and get the dopamine and feel great. But when people were in the right hemisphere, they would tend to look down and they would, be, they would literally be bringing to mind the images of the people in their lives that are available right now. So at every moment, as you, we face a choice, there is the conscious part that's left hemispheric that wants to put today in terms of this long narrative arc. And then there's also the emotional mind, which is going to speak to you through your body, which is going to be giving you a set of messages I don't like this idea one bit, or I like this idea. Think of the person who is told by their parents that the only way to get love consistently, as it was defined by this guy's parents, is to achieve in the world, to be successful. And so he becomes, say, a lawyer. 
and uh, he spends his entire life accomplishing and making a lot of money, and then he stands in front of the room with at his retirement party and with the trophies and the awards, and he's got the BMW, whatever car they drive, and, and, he, and he should feel this great sense of joy, he believes, but instead he feels this emptiness and hollowness because throughout that career arc, he didn't connect to the people that were close to him. His children grew up in the distance of a relationship with his wife, not with him, and he didn't truly connect with the people he worked with. And so emotionally, those needs to deeply connect and to be loved and to be felt and to be known is completely abandoned, and it creates that feeling of emptiness and hollowness that so many of us feel. So um, the consciously activated behaviors that we do, we understand immediately, and we're very comfortable with them. When we are feeling a sense of disappointment in life, and so we decide that we're going to wake up early and go back to work and work harder and you know accomplish more, and we're going to not only accomplish a lot of work, but we're going to finally write that, that book, and we're going to finally do this and the other thing. That will feel great. That will release a lot of dopamine. It will make sense to your emotional mind. I mean, to your narrative mind, to your left hemisphere, it will make complete sense. And you'll feel very comfortable, and it will be very cut and dry. And you will regard that as, like, uh, solutions that make sense. And, but there's another experience. There are the behaviors, the moods, the feelings, the fears, the anxieties, the panic attacks, all of the things that you don't like and I don't particularly like, and we all came to Buddha's practice to get rid of. <laughs> we call them our symptoms, and we all want our symptoms to go away. Symptoms are bad things. And we don't like our symptoms for one particular reason, because they don't make sense to our narrative, thought-based consciousness, which can immediately put our behaviors that we voluntarily generate, we can make sense of. When I wake up out of bed in the morning because I need to get things done and I do it, I can make sense of that behavior. But if I speak in front of you and I suddenly have a panic attack, I can't make sense of that. I didn't want that to arise. I didn't want to experience that. So I will view the behaviors and experiences that I do not like as symptoms, symptoms that I want to get rid of. But symptoms and negative emotions actually all have their own beliefs, emotional beliefs that make total sense. They are not mistakes. I'll say that again. Our symptoms are not mistakes. There is nothing we have as a human being that arises again and again that is arising completely just to torment us for the fun of it. There's nothing. Even the heroin addict's desire to shoot up, the gambler who gambles away his last dime, 
the person who eats themselves into obesity, the person who has compulsive sex, the person who has uh, drinks themselves again and again to a point where they cannot show up for their big break in life. All of those behaviors have an emotional belief to them. And if we treat them like they are simply some kind of devil that we carry around or something in us that's flawed or broken or a mistake, we will never learn to develop emotion integration. To integrate our emotional minds into our lives in a real constructive way, we have to turn towards those things about ourselves that we least like, and instead of going, oh, if only I could get rid of this symptom, this part of myself, the question becomes not how can I get rid of this, but how can I learn to meet this emotional behavior's needs in a way that will alleviate its fears, its anger, its loneliness. So it's not about getting rid of anything at all. It's about learning what it has to say, what message it's carrying, and then addressing that message in a constructive way. So, for example, the person who wants to submit their photography to a photography exhibit, and every single time they find themselves in a procrastination routine where they can't finish up the registration, they just immediately start shopping again. If we view procrastination as a symptom, we will go about all kinds of self-help books looking for the way through procrastination. We'll set like, you know, all kinds of strategies, which may or may help a little bit, but we'll be missing the real point, which is deep down inside, there's a part of me that really is frightened of rejection again and really wants to be reassured that I will still be taken care of and supported even if my photography doesn't get in the exhibit. So the question then becomes, how can I meet that need? How can I reassure that small, frightened child in me that doesn't want to take a risk because I fear, fear that I will be abandoned again and again or rejected or shamed or made fun of? or not get my needs met, how can I reassure it that even if that happens, I'll be okay in a skillful way? So if I reassure that, that voice, I can then move towards all the other strategies to deal with procrastination in a successful way. So for example, if I'm fear, frightened of rejection when I'm doing something creative, I could sit and reflect on all the times in life recently where I've experienced disappointments and rejections, and I've still had people there who love me, who care about me, that I still have connections. Or I could reflect on the times in life where I've taken risks and they've paid off, even though I was terrified. And I don't tell my emotional mind that, because the emotional mind doesn't particularly like language. It tends to work very well, though, with holding very simple images, creating the, what uh, the neurobiologist Rick Hansen calls bottom-up 
feeling where we feel, okay, risk, show, did something in the past that involved risk, and then success, feeling success. Oh, risk doesn't equal abandonment, rejection. Risk can actually equal getting needs met. Or another image, taking a risk in the past, it not working out, still having friends, still having love, still having the people that are important to me. So I'm reassociating risk with not feeling abandoned and alone in the world. I have to do this very simply. The right hemisphere will not want to make these new connections unless we do it very simply. There's a whole new branch of neuropsychology called coherence therapy that I've uh, been reading a lot about in these really quite dense uh, books. And um, uh, they had this text, uh, case study, a, a very interesting case. Uh, this, I'm going to try to remember it for you, this young woman who was in her, maybe her middle 20s, uh, she was English, and she uh, lived with her mother, and she had a fiancé. And the fiancé wanted her to... Um, move out from her mother and live with him. And the mother was all for this. Get the hell out of here. What are you doing? You got a, you know, a fiance, you can get married, you got to get the, the practice of cohabitation. And But every time the mother or the boyfriend would express that, uh, she would become filled with anxiety and fear she would go running up to her room, lock the door behind her, and she would essentially threaten to break off her relationship with the boyfriend, and she would not budge. Now, in this case study, she went to a number of clinics and therapists who viewed that behavior as a symptom that had to be gotten rid of, but the underlying agenda was that there was something wrong completely with her. She finally went to um, a, a very skilled uh, psychologist who, instead of treating it like it was a mistake, wanted to know what the emotional belief behind that behavior was. So he, instead of treating it like a symptom <coughs> of something that was, you know, uh, dysregulated, that required to be gotten rid of, instead, okay, what is this trying to tell us? So he, he said to her, write down uh, this statement, I do not want to leave home because, and she did, and he said, just without thinking about it, without rationalizing it, just tell me what the first thing that pops to mind is, and let's honor whatever it is. And she said, interestingly, she said, I believe my mother will die if I leave home. Now, that might to your left hemisphere sound bizarre that simply her leaving home would kill her mother, but to the emotional mind that could make very, very much sense. So the psychologist said, okay, let's treat that belief seriously, that you believe that leaving home will kill your mother. So he spent weeks with her delving into free association, going through uh, past associations, letting her talk about her childhood. And finally, literally weeks later, this really important memory appeared where she remembered at one point when she was a very little girl, 
her drunk father angrily approaching her mother as if he was going to hit or attack her mother. And the little girl remembered stepping in between her parents and the father seeing her, be, you know, protecting her mother, suddenly feeling guilty or ashamed and turning away. So as a child, she developed an emotional belief stored implicitly in her unconscious mind, which is, I am keeping my mother alive. alive. My presence is the difference between my mother dying and my mother living. Intellectually, that emotional belief makes no sense. And all of our emotional beliefs will not make any sense to our intellectual minds. But our emotional minds, it makes total sense, and it's a belief that we have to address. Some beliefs are, of course, forged very, very, very young, and they're no longer really accurate. For instance, the child in second grade who develops the emotional belief that every time it speaks in public, people will ridicule the child and leave the child feeling alone, is an emotional belief that's based on a specific occasion, and now as an adult, that might very well not happen. But some emotional beliefs also can be very true, as true today as the day they were formed decades earlier. Either way, whether they're true or whether the situations and the settings have changed, we have to take the underlying emotional belief seriously and learn how to address it. So how did the therapist proceed? The therapist proceeded by saying, okay, what I want you to do is write on the card after the part where I believe, I do not want to leave my house because I believe my mother will die. Um, I want you, every time that experience happens, to write one more note, I will look around for evidence that my mother is safe. I will look around for evidence that my mother has said. So every time she would feel that fear of leaving home, she'd read the card and then look around and see the fact that her drunk father was no longer there, that her mother was safe, that she was no longer a child, that she could intervene, that she could always show up whenever her mother needed her, that the settings had changed. So instead of overriding the underlying emotion. She understood the underlying emotion and learned how to address it rather than try to push away the symptom. Rather than saying it's bad that I'm frightened of leaving, she said, of course, it makes sense that I'm frightened of leaving. My job is simply to show that emotion that it will be okay, to take it seriously so that I can leave. Of course, the happy end of the story is she did leave home very shortly after this therapy and wound up getting married to blah, 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 blah. I'm sure they're divorced by now. Who cares? But, you, know, <laughs> you got the idea. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. I have no idea. They didn't have that in the uh, case study. So... Of course, a lot of the implicit beliefs that we have developed, the emotional beliefs, were formed at ages well before we develop what's known as explicit 
coherent conscious memory. So you and all of us will have, myself certainly, will have all kinds of emotional beliefs that are there that will make very little sense to our intellectual mind, but will have their own emotional logic based on the years that we experienced it. I grew up with a drunk, alcoholic father who would beat my mom up in front of me. I have very little, uh, I have some due to years of therapy with a Buddhist therapist and uh, family therapy. I finally have reclaimed a lot of those memories. But for a long time, my great antagonistic dislike of any man who was macho was kind of weird to me. Because, you know, going up in like uh, being a, a drunk, uh, an addict in circles of violent punk guys, they were like the least person that I should be around with that unaddressed feeling. And yet I would constantly, even though I was kind of a puny thin guy, almost get into catastrophic situations because when I would be around somebody that I viewed to be macho and aggressive, I'd do what I did to my dad. You either do one out of two things. You will either shut down emotionally or through hypervigilance become really provoking, seeking some kind of secure attention. That's the choice I did. I would, night after night, apparently, my mom said, do something to provoke my alcoholic father because I didn't feel safe not knowing when the negative attention would come. I had to bring it on in behaviors that I knew. So throughout years and years as an adult, I would provoke really, let's just say, not profoundly enlightened guys <laughs> into really confrontational situations. I, I spent my entire college life at Overland running away from the jocks you know, a little skinny kid in a mohawk who had gone, who would go into jock parties, do something outrageous like steer, steal their vodka, and then run out simply because it was a replaying of that kind of, you know, uh, what Freud calls, um, uh, uh, what do you call it again, where you uh, repeat something? Mastering? No, you re oh. recreate, you. Uh, repetition compulsion. Repetition compulsion. So, um, the, the underlying emotional beliefs that create this behavior can happen so young in life, and I didn't remember a lot of this, that trying to go through the place where you remember the original wounding will very often lead in frustrating failure. You won't be able to recapture why it is you don't like being on boats I've never, I know why, personally, <laughs> but uh, not you don't like being on boats. I know why I don't like being on boats. My dad built, uh, literally built a boat in our living room that sank immediately in the Long Island Sound uh, with me aboard it. Sail. <laughs> I always want him to go out on a boat. So, uh, Im implicit beliefs, they... Though, to make the work easier, even though you won't be able to find or uncover very often the underlying setting that created them, they all have things in common. So we don't have to guess too much at what the needs that these emotional beliefs carry. They all seek interpersonal, safe relationships. They all want to avoid 
abandonments or rejections or interpersonal uh, losses. Again, they all want us to be able to connect, but connect with other people safely, and they want to, at all costs, avoid re-experiencing emotional wounds with other people. So when we have an emotional belief that's arising in a way that seems like a symptom or a mistake, it's trying to tell us that we don't, that it, our emotional mind, doesn't feel safe, that we are not addressing a felt vulnerability. And so our role is to learn, as spiritual practitioners, how to address those, that feeling of felt, vulnerable, felt vulnerability in a constructive way. Now, we've developed a couple of tools already. We did RAIN, where we learned how to create a safe container, hold the emotion as it arose, so that rather than getting rid of it, rather than getting rid of the feeling or the symptom, whatever you want to call it, we can hold it, be with it, allow it to arise and pass, not repress it. We've developed at the very first meditation, concentration, where we use the breath to deactivate the body. And in the breath and the body speaks directly to the frightened mind. Unfortunately, concentration can be a bit of a spiritual bypass. If every single time an emotional fear arises and our strategy is to simply breathe in a comfortable way that deactivates us, we're not in any way meaningfully addressing the underlying emotional belief that wants our attention. We're simply saying, I want to get rid of what it's telling me. It's probably a more skillful way than grabbing a bottle of booze <laughs> or buying something that we don't need on Amazon for the dopamine rush or for you know the other ways that we have of avoiding the message. Deactivating it through the breath is probably a good strategy in terms of overall skillfulness. And if we're in a interpersonal situation where deflected anger or deflected sadness is going to make us act out in a way that will damage the current relationship because there's some emotional belief from the past that this person's about to take advantage of us and we have to protect ourselves and vent at them, even though that anger is really deflected from another earlier experience, Using the breath will really help us in that situation. It will help us be with the anger without acting out on it. The meta practice is a way to be with our anger, our resentments, with real difficult feelings, but instead of draping them in stories that re-trigger them again and again and again and reactivate us and, in fact, make the suffering worse, it helps us add a different story that allows us to process in a safer way some of those feelings. But still, metta itself, too, can be a spiritual bypass. It can be an, uh, a, uh, a way around opening to that emotional vulnerability and healing it or being with it. So... The Buddha, in uh, his teachings beyond mindfulness and beyond concentration, he offered a third tool called Yoniso Manasikara, and that means appropriately seeing 
and appropriately addressing. Uh, it's mentioned throughout uh, the suttas. It's actually mentioned as often as mindfulness is. And you can always tell when the Buddha is teaching Yonisa Mamsikara because he talks about the, th the three things, which is in every situation in life, understanding the appeal, the drawback, and the escape. And for what we're talking about today with emotion integration, understanding the appeal, the drawback, and the escape is a very elegant way of meeting these emotional beliefs and working with them skillfully. So, for example, um, insomnia might seem like a bit of a symptom, right? Nobody likes insomnia. We might immediately rush to take meds or things like that, and sure, they can work, and they actually can be a godsend. And But what happens if we explore certain things that immediately are greeted as symptoms as, as instead we ask, what is the allure, the drawback, and the escape? So what's the allure? of insomnia. Well, you might say, well, I can't think of any allure. Nobody likes it, staying up, wanting to be asleep. But if we let go of our bias against insomnia and we simply look at it, what insomnia does is it keeps us awake and vigilant so that we don't feel like we're going to be caught off guard. So insomnia is basically the emotional mind's way of saying, I don't feel safe yet. You've dropped me in a new situation or I'm in an unfamiliar situation and I don't feel secure. So the lure is it's not going to let us sleep. It feels safer keeping us awake and worrying about all the possible scenarios that could go wrong. What's the drawback of insomnia? Well, you don't have to look too far for that one. It feels miserable. It causes obsessive thoughts. It makes us tired, and we generally don't act in a very skillful way the next day. We feel exhausted and beat down. But if every single time the only thing we know is the drawback and we don't consider what the allure is, then we don't learn how to treat it from a spiritual way. The allure, again, of insomnia is I don't feel prepared. I don't feel safe. I don't feel ready yet. One place that people always get insomnia is on spiritual retreats. The first <laughs> night they go, you know, on a 10-day retreat or nine, you know, seven-day retreat, I guarantee you, your roommate, you know, something about it will keep you up the first night all night long. And it's the emotional mind. People will say, I don't know what's the matter. I'm here. I'm in... You know, I'm in a beautiful place because all retreats are in beautiful places. You know, I, I've, I've waited for this retreat for months and now I'm here and I can't sleep a wink. And why in the world? What's the matter with me? What's the matter with me? And I would say, there's nothing the matter with you. Of course your emotional mind isn't thrilled by this. You're not speaking. You're not capable of getting emotional, you know, uh, in, uh, buoyancy from other people. You're not getting reassurance. You're at a strange place. You're being told to suddenly act like you're a Buddhist. You haven't a clue what that means. You're like not allowed to give people like signals. You go and you're eating strange vegetarian food and you expect your emotional mind to be thrilled about this. Of course it's not. It's, it's telling you, what the hell have I done? 
I don't know what to do here. I don't feel safe. I've got to protect myself. So, Yonisa Manasikara is a way of um, allowing us to acknowledge that. It's, the three steps are the allure, which is asada, the drawback, adinava, and the escape, nisarana. So, uh, we understand the allure now of insomnia, the drawbacks we understand. So, what's the escape? The escape would be understanding that we feel vulnerable and reassuring it, bringing to mind times in the past where we've done strange things, gone strange places, and we still survive, where we didn't die. Bringing to holding in mind a positive reflection of times we've taken a risk and times that instead of being caught off guard or punished as an adult, we were <clears throat> met we were taken care of, that our lives didn't fall apart. And we hold those two images very simply, and we stay with them until the emotional mind, every time the symptom, as we call it, comes up, the emotional belief comes up, instead of running with it or repressing it, we simply meet its needs and use, <coughs> we develop what's called the escape. It's called in coherence therapy the deactivating belief. The emotional belief is every time I do something new, I take a risk in life, my needs will not be met, I'll be abandoned, I'll be rejected, I'll come up short, people won't love me. It'll be just like it was in childhood or in third grade. And the escape is, but there were all these other experiences that our emotional mind has not, didn't, wasn't given the opportunity to deeply ingrain. And we're going to actively bring that and incorporate that into the emotional memory so that the emotional belief can be deactivated. And it actually works very well. I've done this now for 10 years, and I can tell you that the ability to help people deal with recurrent beliefs that have caused them a lot of debilitating experiences are uh, it's remarkable how successful Yunisa Manasikara can be. So let's do this third practice together. Finding a really comfortable seat. So closing the eyes and developing again present time awareness. Feeling the connection with the ground and the chair, the sense of clothes in the body, the feeling of heat or cool on the skin, the subtle sway of the body. So if you'd like, you can bring to mind the unpleasant experience that we did with rain or the troublesome figure that Kathy led us through in Metta, an activating person or experience that creates a sense of unease, or a recent experience that was dis disappointing, or bring to mind something that we've been frightened or avoidant of doing, someone we've been avoiding seeing, something in life we've been avoiding 
addressing and just allow that feeling to be there just allow the image that you have used to reactivate it if it's worth just to be there but now what I'd like you to do is replace that image without pushing away the feeling and just bring to mind an image of someone that you feel really close to. Someone who at times you've reached out to and they've been kind or accepting. And if that doesn't leap to mind, just someone who you respect someone who you know is available. And see if you can soak into the body the feeling of being valued, of being cared for, the feeling of knowing that care or attention is available to you. Letting go of that. Bringing to mind something, a skill, a activity, something that is available to you that brings you joy. Swimming, making tea, working in the garden. Lying in Savasana in a yoga class. Knitting. Working with your hands, drawing, making jewelry. Activity that reliably brings you a sense of joy. And allow both that image and the joy it brings to be associated with the uncomfortable image and the uncomfortable feeling. So that what we're doing is we're showing the emotional mind that even if our needs are sometimes not met, there are outlets. Now we can't show the emotional mind this by telling it or trying to argue with it, but simply holding that feeling that no matter what, I still have this available. The feeling or the image of meditating in our favorite spot. So letting go of the twin images, the activating image and the image that addresses the activation or the emotional belief. Let's bring to mind a new activating image, that feeling at times of having frustration in life, purposelessness, wondering what it's all about, what's the point. 
a feeling sometimes of despair and just assign an image to keep it present and even you can prime that feeling a bit by asking what does it feel like when we can't find the point where we seem lost or adrift where we question all of our agendas and if they really meet our needs So allow that despairing feeling to be there. And then let's address that emotional belief. Bring to mind an image that shows how interconnected our world is and how every little gesture can be meaningful. For instance, an image of a time when we were despairing and someone answered the phone or vice versa. A small little gesture of support made us feel so much lighter. Showing the emotional mind that even amidst these times where the emotional despair at being not heard, being lost amid all of our seeking for achievement, all of our pushing and busyness, our overscheduling, that feeling, what's it all about? Why am I bothering? And then reminding it that right here and right now in our life are all the signs in those small moments of care and kindness. That can make such a huge difference to our emotional state. Bringing to mind a time in life where we were despairing and that sense of the despair being lifted the passing when an emotional mood is finally heard and felt and then drifts away. Knowing that when we truly attune to our emotional messages, that alone sometimes can alleviate the pain, the purposelessness, the feelings of fear, so I'm going to ring the bowl and once again you're invited to slowly open your eyes and integrate, not get rid of the feelings that we've brought up, but bring them with us into our lives, not running away, being with.